This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. Sometimes it was very upsetting it because the feeling in there would just remain and I would finish writing and I'd be shaking. And I would continue to shake as though something had just happened that made me recognize something from my past that had been a puzzle. I'm your host, Casey Finey, and this is Creative Conversation, a Fast Company podcast. This episode is a little personal for me because I'm talking to author Amy Tan, who I was first introduced to at a pretty young age by my mom. As an English and literature professor, my mom taught Amy's debut novel, The Joy Luck Club, in her classes. And I just remember her raving about how impactful this story of immigrant women and their American-born daughters was for her as an immigrant herself. And it wasn't until I read the book that I finally understood what my mom and obviously hundreds of thousands of readers were gushing about. The Joy Luck Club and really all of Amy's novels beautifully unpack facets of the Chinese immigrant experience, the complexities of family dynamics, and the trauma that often fuels those complex dynamics. For Amy, writing her novels is a better way to understand herself and the experiences that have shaped her, and she has definitely had some experiences that she lays bare in her PBS documentary, Unintended Memoir. In our conversation, Amy breaks down her relationship between trauma and creativity, what she learned from joining a rock band, and she was even kind enough to answer a question from my mom. So, mom, this episode is for you. I'm so excited to talk to you today, but honestly, there's one person who was even more excited that I'm talking to you, and that was my mom, because <laughs> I'm not I'm not joking. I called her earlier to tell her I was interviewing you, and she screamed, actually screamed in my ear and cried a little bit, because I just, no, I'm not kidding. I discovered your work through her, because she's an English and literature professor, and she taught the Joy Luck Club for years in her class, and I finally read it when I was a little bit older, and I saw, you know, for myself, what all her fuss was about <laughs> and you know so but just so you know there's an english professor in louisiana oh. who adores you and your work and i even have oh. a question for her that i'll save for the end because i promise her that I okay ask. all right okay <laughs> so, hi mom just so hi, you mom. know she oh you just made her life she's gonna listen to this and she's gonna flip out but <laughs> i would really want to start i always love talk when i talk to my guests i always like to start at the beginning and so you know for you what was really your first memory of creating something that had some resonance with you? If I were to go into my professional life as a writer, I would say it was in 1987. And I had started to write stories that would eventually become the Joy Luck Club. And I got to the end of one story that I had written. And I caught my breath. I got to the end. And I caught my breath and I started to cry. You never want to admit this as a writer that you either laughed at your own joke lines <laughs> or that you cried at some tender moment. But I do have to say that that was my reaction. And it is a good thing. It is what made me realize the worthiness of my continuing to write because it was a, it was a recognition of some truth about myself not anything profound that was going to change my life, but it was like having your best, best, best friend who understands you right there and say, yep, that's what it was. 
you know, this complex thing you could only get to through a story and you write the last line that puts it together. I love that. I identify heavily with, you know, being the child in your room, you know, creating stories and drawing pictures because I did the exact same thing. You know, I, I grew up in a family where I have two older siblings who are doctors and one older sibling who's an engineer and my parents are from Nigeria. So that first generation like yeah. idea of, you know, and I, I was, I was going to ask, I mean, your backstory, you know, mimics that of so many first generation children and that there can be this enormous pressure from mm. parents to follow a more mm-hmm. quote unquote respectable and, you know, in their eyes, lucrative and stable career. Yeah. And that's, a, like I said, that's a fire that I walked through myself. <laughs> and yeah. So yeah. With the hindsight you have today, I mean, how would you say that? that particular backdrop shaped you as a writer? Well, in many ways, it was, of course, terrible. Um, The expectations (laughs) and feeling like you could never achieve them, and hence you were a little bit stupid, um, that you were not as good as people expected. I still have that feeling today. And sometimes, you know, they'll say, oh, but you're a, you know, you're this great writer. And I said, you know, I'm the only one here who's realistic about this. I'm, you know, there are lots of great writers, blah, 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 blah. So that I still carry with me of not thinking too highly of myself. Now, on the other hand, I think that's good because if I did think that and things didn't go as I expect, you know, this realism of how life happens, you do get older or, you know, whatever, you're not everybody's going to like you. I have trolls on my Facebook page, whatever it is, you know, you just have to say this is the reality of life and I don't have unrealistic expectations. The other, I think, was really feeling like I had no identity when I finally decided I wasn't going to become a concert pianist or a doctor. Mm-hmm. You know, who, who am I now? Right. You know, once the expectations are gone and I have accepted them for so long until I was, you know, 18 years old, who am I now? You know, but on the other hand, again, there's always these plus sides. It made me really think who I am, really consider hard, you know, who am I? And it's a question I still have today. It's a valuable question to have and to realize there's never any give an answer at one point in time, it's just constantly changing. This may tie back to what you said earlier about, you know, in in 1987, you had that moment of finishing writing something and, you know, you got emotional because it felt like you got out your feeling how you felt it. And so for those who don't know, I mean, you, you, you studied English and linguistics in college. And at the start of your professional career, you know, you worked as a language development specialist and as a business writer for companies, including AT&T and IBM. And then along the way, writing fiction came into the picture. So <laughs> what 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 was it? I would like to hear a little bit about about that switch, because it seems like you you almost dabbled in it first and then, you know, we'll get to the Joy Luck Club in a minute because yeah. that obviously, you know, was proof that you had a gift for it but I guess like what was that initial initial foray that initial that initial flirting with the idea even of even pursuing fiction in a more serious way I was very unhappy with my work because it didn't mean anything to me I had a lot of clients a lot of jobs and and it was hard to walk away from that but I decided that I would set aside time each week to write fiction I had met a fiction writer 
And I said the words that every published fiction writer hates to hear, which is, gee, I'm thinking of writing some fiction. If I do, would you read it? <laughs> <laughs> Amazingly, she said yes in 1985 and went to a writer's workshop, was so elated, so nervous, came out of there with a manuscript that was all, you know, marked up, you know, with why'd you say this? This is a cliche. You know, this is not a consistent voice. I loved it. Nobody expected anything of me with this fiction. That wasn't <laughs> going to be my right. career. So I was learning something and I was very excited. And I took all these suggestions and I started working on this over again. And that became a published story, much to my amazement. And to this day, it's not to denigrate myself. It's not necessarily to keep myself in a place of humility, although I do think that's necessary. It's that I truly believe there was a little bit of help from wherever you would say blessings or luck or fate or any of those things come from, that I had a little extra lifting of what the possibilities might be. Because every time I almost forgot to keep writing fiction, something would happen. It was almost spooky. Like what? Well, one was that I that first story, and then I'd put it down, and somebody would send me a note and say, hey, so-and-so told me about the story. Would you send it to us? We might want to publish it. And I get published, you know, 300 <laughs> bucks. No, I'm sorry. It's exaggerating. It was $30. Oh, wow, yeah. <laughs> and then I'd forget. And then somebody would call up, you know, I wouldn't be writing. And then it, an agent, you know, I read this story, I heard good things. Can I see more work? And then I'd forget again. And then I'd get another call and be somebody wanted to republish, reprint. the. And then what happened with the first book? As I said, I'm a realist. You don't have an unknown writer who's never written any published work, short stories, you know, you, that just doesn't happen. So it was crazy. There were so many things that happened that I can't explain. And I, I have to give credit to something outside of myself. And, you know, speaking of The Joyla Club, which, you know, of course, was your debut novel in 1989. I mean, you it, it just was chart topping success you know the, the just massive amounts of sales and of course you know it was, it was a cultural landmark for so many people just in terms of you know having representation at that scale and so I, I know that it's 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 hard to as you mentioned I mean, it's hard to predict the success of anything let alone the work of a debut novelist but did it feel like you were writing something special as you were writing it like what did you have a feeling of like this could be something or were you just so in the weeds that you were like I just want to get this done. <laughs> like, oh, no, I was having the first book was probably the easiest book because you don't have any expectations and nobody mm -hmm. is saying to you, this better be a bestseller. Everybody else has low expectations because it's the first book. And when I was writing it, I was so excited because each story was a revelation and I kept having these epiphanies. My expectation actually was based on what the, the norm was in the industry, which is maybe if you're lucky, you'd say sell 5,000 copies. Your books would be on the shelves for six weeks, and then it would be gone. I, I swear, I never had a dream of anything that happened. I wrote the book really fast because I didn't want them to change their mind. That was about <laughs> it. You know, 
I never <laughs> thought I was writing some kind of thing that would be cultural breakthrough for writers of color. You know, I can't take credit for that because I didn't intend it. I'm very glad if it helped in that direction. But I know what I should take responsibility for or credit for. And I, I mm. can't because I wrote that book for myself. So how did you find the joy in writing again? Because you, you mentioned earlier that coming from the workshop, you felt excited, you felt exhilarated because and, and in writing this, you had no expectations, which for so many creatives, like that's usually that's usually the best feeling when they when they create that first thing, because there are no expectations. You just have yeah. the freedom to create and no one's no one's breathing down your neck, so to speak. So yeah. for your subsequent books, I mean, like, how did you how did you find that that passion again, that love again? How did you pull yourself out of that feeling of depression? Well, the second book I wrote probably seven different starts and I had to abandon them. And it was because I was trying to figure out what they liked about the first book, what people liked, what this reviewer, what these, these readers had liked and trying to capture some weird essence of it, which didn't work. It wasn't genuine. And I, I had to go back into thinking, what is this writing about? And I had actually written this down. The purpose of writing this is it's to understand myself, to understand human nature, my relationship, and not to impress anybody. And I, the best gift I can give my mother is listening to her story and writing it down. I'd have to change it, of course, but the heart of it and the thrust of it, the intent was to show her life, the emotions of her life and what she had gone through. And that was the second novel then, The, the Kitchen God's Wife which she started to read, but then she had difficulty because she developed Alzheimer's. And I remember uh, my mother had a very good sense of humor. So she would love that I could joke about some of these things. She would still joke when she had Alzheimer's. But I asked her if she finished it. I kept asking. She said, no, no. And then finally she said, I don't have to finish it. I know that story. <laughs> but why'd you ask me to write it, Mom? I know. I know that story. And I said, yes, you do. <laughs> and, but she's, oh, yeah. Man. Everything that I've written that seems to be about her or is about her, anything that I've said about her, I have or could say that in front of her. I could have said that in front of her. And she was an uncensored, unfiltered person who mm. did not have good judgment on the kinds of things you one should not talk about. As you can see in the documentary, she talks about her sex life. Um, I, I mean, have you ever heard, I, I did have not you expect ever heard, Have you ever heard a mother talking about her sex life and three no. ways, you know, I'm, I'm just like, <laughs> Oh, I'm doing the video and I'm trying not to say anything. You may think that I'm dispassionate and she's talking and I'm just saying, uh-huh. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Try not to interrupt her. Try not to react right. in a way. I just want her to go on like somebody in a PTSD memory, which she would do. And she recounted <laughs> this horrible sex life that she had. We're going to take a quick break. And when we're back, Amy explains how she mines personal trauma to fuel her work while preserving her sanity. This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. 
your work largely stems from, you know, the relationship that you had with your mother that was at times quite turbulent. And your work also weaves in your mother's, as you mentioned, her perspective of her past that was also incredibly turbulent. So over the course of your career, what has become your relationship with trauma and creativity? I recognized something about trauma when I was writing the, the last book. If I could capture, remember, recall a certain feeling that I had during experience, that I could possibly feel it again all over in my visceral system, this, this system that goes up to your, the emotional parts of your brain. And it is the, the mechanism that is related to PTSD. And so I would use this to get back into the scene, to the emotions and write from that emotional core. Sometimes it was very upsetting it because the feeling in there would just remain and I would finish writing and I'd be shaking and I would continue to shake as though something had just happened that made me recognize uh, something from my past that had been a puzzle. So I use the emotional memories as a foundation for stories. It's different for everybody, but if you're writing about something that is based on bad experiences, trauma, in fact, that these things get transmuted over time. But if you can go back and and capture the freshness of that, it becomes a source for many different stories, not just the one that happened, but all kinds of situations where you're caught in something. And and now it's not just simply the moment, it's everything around it, the whole context, what you know about the other person in that scene. And it all builds into it. But the main gravitational pull is that emotional experience, the trauma. Is there a way to protect yourself when you do that? Because it's to some, I, I can see this, I can see the argument in many different directions. Like one could say that, you know, digging up these emotions and putting them on the page, even if they never are published, can be helpful in some regard. But then you're also reliving that trauma. Yeah. And so for you to, and but, but then you have to relive that to have like an accurate, to accurately portray it. And that's what makes your writing mm-hmm. so resonant and amazing. So for you, how do you find that balance between evoking these really tough traumatic emotions while also protecting your sanity. My sanity, yeah. I think, first of all, that this is something that people should not try if they are feeling extremely vulnerable, if they have had lasting damage from trauma and, you know, they're not quite prepared to relive a lot of this. Or they can say, this trauma gave me an understanding in myself and I can now use it as a strength. And so I know that I have an alternative and it's simply different from when you were stuck in that particular place with the trauma. I will say, I don't think writing is necessarily the way that you would get to resolutions and overcome something that is is a more serious psychological issue. But I think anytime you can have realizations, you have a better understanding for yourself. If you can take it to different levels and different directions, say, here's what I've done with this and here's what I can do or here's how I can look at now that I've confronted the, the, the nightmare, the trauma, now I can move in this direction. 
I had a very enlightening dream after friend was murdered, um, very dear friend. And uh, in this dream, he came to me uh, was when I was being chased by the quintessential boogeyman who was, you know, some monster. And he, I was running up the stairs. My legs were full of, you know, lead. And uh, I hear my friend saying, turn around and look what's chasing you. No, no, I'm going to die. No, turn around and look. And I looked and yes, the monster was there, but then it looked at me, it was so surprised it just disappeared. And, and my friend said, you see, it's your fears that give power to those monsters and um, you have to look at them. And for a minute, we can throw all your books aside because I want to talk about Rock Bottom Remainders because that's something that I did not even know about. I felt almost ashamed that I'd never heard of it until I watched this talk. And so for, for, anyone, for anyone out there, please, who hasn't heard, if I'm the only yeah, one, I know, you know there's a lot of heavy hitters Grammy. in this band. We didn't I get mean, a listen, Grammy award. Yeah, and I, I consider this the official <laughs> petition for Grammys 2022. Oh, like we are going to get you, you that Grammy. Thank so for those you. who don't know, could you ex please explain the amazingness um, that is Rock Bottom Remainder? Well, okay. This and how 19, you became associated with them. 1992, there's, there was a woman, Kathy Kamen Goldmark, who was a media escort, meaning she would drive all the authors to their appointments, media appointments. And she said to a number of her, her favorites, she said, Gee, I'm thinking of starting a rock band to play at the American Bookseller Association. Would you be interested in being in the band? And she was in a band and she had great music in her car. And a bunch of us said yes. And those who said no regretted it <laughs> because <laughs> we have the greatest time. And, and, you know, we continued over the years. But the members of the band include Stephen King. He's, of course, mm -hmm. the king, the, the big one. Dave Barry, Scott Turow. Um, Mitch Album, Matt Groening of The Simpsons, um, Roy Blunt Jr., James McBride, Mary Carr, Greg Isles, uh, Ridley Pearson. There, there's so many people who've been, we've been friends since 1992. And you know, hmm. when you you have somebody you have hung out with and shared good times together, you can be friends, but maybe there are things you don't know about the other. When you have been with people and you've shared death-defying moments like dying on stage <laughs> and it's terrorizing, you have a bad voice and you are singing in a microphone to 3,000 people, that is terror. And you share that with these people and you become very close to one another. So we've always had a good time. I'm what not a great like? singer. Oh, please. but but I think that there in in the footage that you, that we see in the documentary, and I'm sure you can probably find somewhere on YouTube. And I encourage everyone to do so because it is so much fun. Like you can tell how much fun you're having, and I think that you. It's just yeah. What was well, that? What one, was that like for you? There's one that shows this in 1992. I have kind of a curly wig on and and a mm -hmm. glittery dress. <laughs> but the other one, the more recent one that was shown in Tucson. That was a crazy performance. I have never sung like that. I'm basically screaming. And it was because that day my sister died. Um, she died suddenly in Egypt. She's my half-sister. And she had, I think, a blood clot. And I was almost not going to go on. But then I thought, where am I going to go? None of my family were going to be able to get together. 
so we weren't having a wake or anything. And here I was with very close friends, and I thought, well, maybe I should just stay here. And I wasn't going to perform. And then I decided, what, what the hell? I'll, I'll just get up there. And then this screeching voice, this crazy voice, which somehow matches the songs, that's what came out. I think it kind of shocked the people in the band, actually, wow. I <laughs> that I was, I was that way. So, yeah, it's, it was a very different kind of, of performance. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, did you learn anything from sort of stepping outside of your your normal path of a writer? Because that's that's quite a departure going from well, novelist to rock yeah, star. One is to just not care about being perfect because there was it was impossible for me to even approach some notion of perfect, you know, and singing <laughs> like that. And the other was that you have to connect with the audience. It was not so much about how well you sing. It was how well you connect. And every audience is different. And that helped me in another sense. I used to give talks and I thought, I'm just saying the same things over and over again. And I'm on a replay and this is not how I want to do my life. But then I realized, no, every audience is different. And I have my challenge is to say things that they will understand and feel. That is amazing. And one thing I always love to ask my guests is when you think about where you are at this point in your career and everything that we've been talking about in this conversation, how have you come to define creativity? Creativity, I believe, is so unique to each person. So you can't say, take a square, a triangle, and a circle and do something creative with it when those <laughs> elements may not even be relevant in your life as a creative person. What we have as our stockpile uh, to to use in, in our creative minds are all these experiences, our observations, and our feelings about those things that happen. And I believe that, as I had mentioned before, that you take portions of that, some kind of image or feeling or sensation at the same time, and they're all intertwined into this one experience. And you suddenly you put that you layer that onto something else, whether it's art or a story or a song or what you use as a metaphor. And for me, it's a lot to do with imagery, kind of a always transitioning fluid dynamic image that can, you know, kind of transform and grow and apply to other contexts and be very personal at the same mm -hmm. time. Speaking of very personal, last question, Mom, I did not forget about you. She asked, <laughs> I promise I'd ask you, ask Hi, you this Mom. question. <laughs> she asked, what advice does she have for young immigrant mothers who might not know how to balance their own experiences as children back home with raising young children in the U.S. who do not quite understand their mother's circumstances and unique ways of expressing maternal love? Oh, God, that was the big question for me growing up. And I realized, having written these books, you know, about my mother, how maddening it could be, you know, that your children don't understand your intent, you know, that for all of this. But yes, one is that at a certain point, no one's interested in knowing what your story is in the old country. Of course not, you know, they're modern and what you say is just old fashioned and that doesn't apply to the U S you know, 
but hopefully if they are the kind of kids that you raise, despite their rebelliousness, they will come to a point when they do want to know more about how they became who they are and what the family is about and what the family values came from and mm. be prepared to tell that story. And I do recommend, even if maybe before they have a chance to ask you, sit down and have somebody just listen as you tell your story. Why did you leave? It was an interesting question that was posed to a group of high school kids. Why did your parents or your grandparents leave? And their job was to sit down and listen and transcribe. And the answers they got were stunning. And these were high school kids. And I, I think it's a, an exercise everyone should do with family members, especially those who came from another country. You just have to, you're doing it with love. And, and fortunately, a lot of it is going to stick in a different way in later years, um, the values of that and the things they didn't want to hear, the criticisms, and they'll realize it's stuck in their mind and they resent it or it's stuck in their mind and they're so grateful because <laughs> you made them <laughs> a stronger person. <laughs> and for me, that is definitely true. When I think of all the things my mother taught me, some of it is not how I would want to be because I would not have wanted to go through her experiences that made her cautious or, or whatever it was. But I'm, I'm so glad that I have it in me. And it has a lot to do with my sense of individuality that just as an example, she could not tolerate in me any kind of disrespect, just Oof. drive her nuts. And, my mom is exact same way. <laughs> well, and in my case, my mother would threaten to kill herself. So was, I had to take this very seriously. Mm -hmm. But she would also feel that way if anybody insulted her in public, if anybody denigrated her, if anybody was condescending. So what I have taken that's ingrained in me is I cannot stand for anybody to be condescending toward me, patronizing toward me or you know, so I'm not, uh, I, I'm somebody who would, I'm a very, I'm a very open and person. I think I'm a very kind person, but if somebody tried to treat me in a condescending way, then that's the end of that relationship. I don't tolerate disrespect. That came from my mother and I'm glad, I mean, it, it may seem intolerant, I'm, you know, that I'm a little too harsh about that, but I'm glad to know that I respect myself enough not to take that, you know, from other people. Mm, I love that. Amy, <laughs> thank you so much for this conversation. Oh, I you. really appreciate it. This thank was you. such a delight. So yeah, my mom's going to freak out officially. So thank <laughs> you. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Thanks for listening to Creative Conversation. We've got some really amazing episodes coming up, so make sure you subscribe so you don't miss a thing. See you soon.